This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Hold True Tattoo Studios. The new studio is now open in Hamilton, and if you're interested in getting any tattoo work done or discussing any designs, please contact the chief artist, Brian Bell. You can find Hold True Tattoo Studios on Instagram and on Facebook, so if you're at all interested, please check them out. Hi Jasmine, how are you? Good, how are you? Brilliant. So <laughs> good to see you. Yeah, absolutely. How are things? Things are they're, they're going as well as, as can be expected. Right. With, with the lockdown and stuff. But listen, uh, everyone's healthy, everyone's happy. So yeah. good. How are you? Yeah, same, same. <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah. know if we're on as severe of a lockdown over here in America yet. Um it seems like over there in Europe is is pretty strict. Yeah, yeah. we we've had a number of lockdowns. Uh, the one at the moment is is the, the only the only shops that are allowed to be open are food and, and medicine really yeah. uh, necessities. And there's a there's a stay at home order as well. So right. oh, yeah. you're allowed out once a day to to go do some exercise, but. Right. Maybe a, a walk in the park or something like that, but but wow. yeah, the yeah. order is is literally only once a day you're allowed outside. That, is that like the guideline or yeah yeah? I might I might have just fibbed to you there because it might be twice now. I think they <laughs> I can't keep up with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that that's the only reason, and you must stay in your local sort of area as well. You're not allowed to you're not allowed to travel or anything. So right. I mean, Really different. What, what the 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 way that America and, and here in the UK seem to have set up against COVID just seems to be completely different. Yeah. Uh, what what what's it actually like over there at the moment as far as uh, COVID related yeah, lockdowns and stuff? I feel like um, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, definitely state by state, they're responding differently um, here in Pennsylvania. I don't even, it's like, I don't even know now, like what type of stage that we're in. I know that um, everywhere across the country, the priority is on um, getting out the vaccines as quickly as possible. But again, the efficiency of that too uh, varies widely state by state. Um, you know, Ryan, his family, some of his families in uh, Maryland, and they were very swift. Um, even yeah. I have friends in New York, and it sounds like things are running along fairly smoothly. But here where I live in Pennsylvania, it's just a, it's terrible. <laughs> it just seems like a huge mess. And um, I think Think the latest news was Ryan's mother was trying to get an appointment, but they found out that something like 20,000 or 200,000 of the shots that were supposed to be reserved for the second dosage yep. were accidentally given away. And so <laughs> her appointment had to get canceled. And so it's just such a disorganized mess, which is very frustrating. Um, and, uh, but as far as right now in my county, um, there's some restaurants that are opening for dine-in apparently. Uh, personally, I'm just, I don't wanna take a risk. I've been hospitalized with pneumonia before. And so it's just, I'm extra cautious. <laughs> um, 
yeah, so I've just been staying at home, really uh, grateful that I have like technology and everything to keep me connected. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we I think we just reached 20 million vaccines of the first one here in the UK. Uh, right. But they, they do seem to be moving pretty quickly. There's been there's been a lot of things that I've disagreed with the way we've managed it. A lot of things that have been behind 100 uh, percent. Yeah, but the, the the differences, not just between the US and the UK, but just country to country, seems yeah. to be completely different. Right. Uh, do you uh, do you have much knowledge on how? Uh, I believe South Korea were one of the countries that really locked down quickly and have been quite successful. I keep telling everybody that, and it's I'm doing my usual. There's no facts behind that. I just probably <laughs> I, I think yeah. I just heard it somewhere. No, I believe there are facts that back that, um, but I, I have, yeah, it just seems, again, I, I know somebody also in Korea and, and they, the restaurants over there seem to be opening up for some dine-in as well. Okay. And uh, in Korea too, I mean, I think it's also, it varies from state to state and country to country because of infrastructure too and, yeah. and culture. And in Korea, everyone's got this collective mindset where they're willing to share like, well, I don't know how willing they are, but I think everyone's data and location is far more tracked yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and in this purpose. It's, it's for a good purpose, I think, as far as, um, you know, taking control of the virus, uh, and that's led to, I think, quicker, you know, uh, pathways to freedom for them as far as mobility yeah. and all that. But yeah, I don't know. It's one, it's one of the things that I've actually had thoughts on regarding the US is that there seems to be a, a people want to hold on to their freedoms, which means that it's taking longer to get out the other end, if that, if that makes sense. Whereas I think even in the UK, we were more uh, open to the idea of locking down, closing everything. Now, it didn't actually work out as well as what we hoped, but yes. we wanted to lock down with the hope that we would open up sooner. And that that hasn't actually totally happened. But uh, yeah, as you say, every country just seems to be coping differently, I think. Right. And yeah, I'm, I'm hoping... I don't know. I don't, yeah, I don't know what it's like over there because I keep hearing about these new variants um, yeah. that are making it just spread more more quickly and just it's I don't know. So that's really quite terrifying. Yeah. But um, I don't know if the variants have come to America yet. Okay. So we'll see. I, I think I heard in the news on NPR though recently, just a couple of days ago, how there is a new surge that's a little bit concerning, but. Mm -hmm. Uh, overall, the message seems hopeful. Good. <laughs> yeah, so. Good, good. Uh, do you know, Jasmine, we'll just keep rolling today, actually, yeah. because, uh, well, I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on. And uh, when when your calendar, I, I always look at you and think, how does this girl keep doing what she's doing? <laughs> uh, but when your calendar became open and, and we managed to do this so quickly, I was I was really really chuffed. So, first of all, thank you because it's it's a treat to have you on. It really is. Oh, thank you. It's a treat for me to be on. So, <laughs> so hopefully we'll have a we're, and there's no hopeful about it. We'll have a brilliant conversation. Yeah. Uh, I want to start in a, a there's lots of positive things, but I do want to start on something that might be 
Well, it's not negative. It is what it is, I guess. But uh, what's it been like in the last couple of months in the states? Uh, we we seem to have a we seem to have more of an interest sometimes in U.S. politics oh. and what we do in our own politics. Uh, not not for everybody, not for everybody, but uh, it's definitely been a a, a more the last. In fact, I was going to say the last couple of months, but it's been for much longer than that. Quite a divisive and situation. So, as someone who's who's in the states at the moment, what, what's it been like? Oh boy, um, very compounded layers of stress and anxiety, especially um, for being the face of someone who is quite targeted right now, unfortunately. Um, yeah. Although um, anti-Asian and anti-Asian American violence is definitely not new, but uh, for sure to see this um, rise in reports, especially all over my feed, um, particularly of our elders being attacked has been very, very upsetting. Um, you know, I've, I've talked about this before elsewhere where, you know, we just had, um, you know, 80 year old men being pushed down randomly and uh, a 90 year old man. And so I think the, the most recent uh, case was of the 84 year old uh, grandfather from Thailand. And he was just randomly attacked, uh, completely unprovoked and that led him to his death. Oh. And, you know, you know, my father is just 80 now. So, you know, yeah. nobody really thinks of Grandmaster Cho as a grandfather, but to me, he's still my dad, you know, yeah. and, and, and I would still be concerned if someone were to knock down my dad, you know, like out of nowhere, you know, that's yeah. still a possibility. It doesn't matter if he's a Grandmaster. I'd to like me, to see him try. Matter, you know, yeah. <laughs> so it's just, it's, it hits so close to home, um, you know, and it's just, it's very, I don't know. I think everyone's still very much on edge. And again, like we briefly talked about the pandemic and how it's going and how there's a sense of hopefulness as well. And I think it's the same with, with all of this, everything going on with all the multiple, multiple layers, because, you know, just before our inauguration, we had the insurrection. And so it's just, that was a matter of just a couple of weeks. And it's just, quite traumatizing really you watch this footage of everything happening um at our nation's capital and then just a couple weeks later you see the poet amanda gorman just speaking such powerful words through her poetry and just it's just like oh my gosh you know you're riding this in like crazy roller coaster so I don't know how I can speak for the whole country, you know, but like for me, it's that's how it's felt, you know, just personally, just such a severe up and down and trying my best to um, be as stable <laughs> as possible. Um, but yeah, I mean, even just a, a few weeks ago for me personally, it's just life is very different. Um, again, because of COVID, but also specifically the uh, anti-Asian racism and and the spike in it. Um, I don't know if you you know this, but Pittsburgh was recently uh, uh, named by the FBI as one of the uh, hubs of white supremacist uh, terrorist groups. So <laughs> that's not comforting at all for me to hear. Um, but yeah, so because of that, I, you know, like I, I bake and all of that, and I was looking into a potential turnkey commercial kitchen space, which was quite exciting, but ultimately I, I didn't feel safe because that neighborhood is, is just very dominantly white. Um, and so I just, 
it unfortunately was a decision that I had to make based on that. And um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's difficult times. Um, but yeah, I, I, in some ways I, I say, you know, the, the racism is nothing new. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think about, you know, like, you know, I just had a nephew who was born yeah. and yeah. for our younger generations, this will feel, this is new to them, you know, in a different way. And so, yeah, it's, it's a lot, it's a yeah. lot to it's, navigate. This might be an obvious or, 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 or a silly question, but just so we're, we're absolutely clear, do you, do you think, or is this spike in, in uh, anti-Asian violence or violence towards all of the Asian communities directly linked, do you think, to COVID? Is, is that what? Well, I, I don't know if it's linked specifically to COVID, but the rhetoric that was spread, yeah, you yeah. know, about it. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we had a, a president who was naming it the Kung Flu and continued yeah. to label it as the China virus. And, you know, there are people who argue it's like, oh, that's where it came from. But it was done. You, you know that the intention was not regional. <laughs> it was yeah. it was to blame and to target. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, again, like talking about history of racism, um, I, I also don't know if you know this about American history, but one of the largest mass lynchings was of 18 Chinese immigrants. It was it was the Asian population that. targeted. Yep. Yeah, back in 1871. Um, so yeah, it's just, I feel that the Asian immigrant population is a common scapegoat uh, mm-hmm. for tensions that happen, whether they are interracial tensions, uh, you know, between the black and white community, we're kind of wedged in the middle, um, or economic reasons, you know, where like back, uh, you know, um, in in American history, when like, say, in the 60s or so, where, um, or was it in the 80s, 70s, 80s, around there, when um, the Japanese uh, car industry, it it was like kind of seen as taking away American jobs. And so, uh, you know, we had this killing uh, of Vincent Chen, who was actually a, a Chinese American, but was targeted as somebody misunderstood as being Japanese and taking jobs away. And he's just a human being. We are all just human beings. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, we're being forced with this uh, blame. And yeah, I, I definitely think that there's a correlation that can be found yeah. for sure. Yeah. I, I, and again, maybe this is something we can talk about later, but uh, having known you and Doing a wee bit of research this this weekend, leading up to the sort of conversation today, uh, rewatching your TED talk, which hopefully we can chat about as well, which was really cool. Uh, but I kind of grew up suffering quite a bit of racism as well, uh, and my my father's Tunisian, so North African, uh, a North African Muslim, and then my mum was a a white Scot. And after nine eleven, and I know we're going back quite a bit there. But the the anti-Islamic uh, rhetoric, really, and then the, the violence that that then created, I can definitely see a, a comparison there between people saying it's... And again, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here speaking to someone whose parents are Korean, they're not even Chinese, and as, as you described the, the gentleman from Thailand or Vietnam or any of these countries, it, people just people just see someone of Asian descent or someone who looks or might look from uh, an Islamic or Arab descent and then 
you're a target straight away. I definitely felt that myself. Yeah, it's, a, it's I think it's, you know, I, I said we are all human beings, but sometimes we operate from very, our lowest selves, I guess, yeah, when we yeah. get into that group and gang mentality. And it's just, that's why I, all my work is about encouraging people to pause because I think that pause is so important. Like that's one really positive thing about this pandemic is it's forcing a lot of people to pause against their will, unfortunately. So there are people fighting the pause, but that slowing down at least I think helps us to humanize one another and, and just get into our higher selves. Um, yeah. Like even like road rage, you think about it, you you would never act that way to a person face to face, but when no. you're in a car and there's no human face to read, then you get so angry and yeah. become completely depersonalized. So, yeah. So, social media is very similar actually. Uh, and again, that can fit into people who might be being discriminatory against Asians or against Muslims. Mm -hmm. If they were standing in front of you, the way, even the way we are talking now where we can see each other, right. that's completely different from typing out a, a, visit, a vicious message on Twitter or on yeah. Facebook or whatever it's. Yes. Yeah. Right, so anyway, that's quite a, a, quite a negative start to the conversation. <laughs> there's, there's, there's so much nice, good stuff we can talk about. Uh, I'm going to do what I always do, Jasmine, unfortunately, and, and jump about a lot, but you'll keep up with me for sure. Uh, <laughs> let, me, let me ask one question, and I'm sure this will open up many other, others. What is cookie activism? So yeah. Let, let, yeah. let's start on more positive stuff. Right. So, I mean, I believe everybody has a platform and mine just turned out to be cookies. But to me, uh, cookie activism is really just one iteration of, um, you know, small acts of creativity making a very big change. Um, and yeah, I just talked about how the work that I do is really focused on encouraging people to pause. And I don't know a better source than cookies that <laughs> are as disarming and cause people to, you know, like take notice. And so that's been, um, yeah, just kind of a happy a sort of serendipitous accident that happened where, you know, I, I had started my own online bakery. And then when somebody asked me to put their face on a cookie, they kind of went viral. And I was like, oh, you know, people really pay attention to these. Like, I feel like I got something here. So that's, that's really just how I very organically came up with the idea of, well, if people are going to be looking at my face cookies anyways, then let me put the faces of people who I wish I saw more uh, represented in media, but also the people who I wished I learned about while growing up in this country, like all the people who are missing from my textbooks. So that that is basically it. I'm just teaching through a very attractive, disarming medium. Um, and yeah, so that's that's the that's what cookie activism is. <laughs> Let's go back then to uh, you, you didn't grow up thinking I'm going to uh, become uh, Maybe you did think about the bakery and that that right. commercial side of it possibly, but you never thought to yourself, surely, as a sixteen and seventeen year old, I'm going to become a cookie activist. So right, yeah. Uh, let's take a couple of steps back and and share your story of how you first started baking and then how that then grew to what it what it is today. Yeah. 
Yeah, so this is a story I, I love to share about my dad that people don't know as much this side of him. But, you know, I, I, I tell everybody that not every home grows up with a positive relationship with sugar, you know, and, and treats and all that. But our family did. I mean, my dad and my brother, we all have a sweet tooth as well, really bad one. But um, yeah, so like treats and cake and all this stuff was always treated as what it was meant to be, which is celebratory and, and a treat. And so um, that included one time when I was a kid and I was really sick with a very high fever. And um, my dad came home that day with like five pints of ice cream and like an ice cream cake and ice cream pie. It was just like he had this huge, you know, bag of, of treats. And so, you know, like that really defined my whole relationship to dessert and like always being very positive. And so it started with a love of consuming <laughs> the baked goods first. And so I naturally had an, an interest in wanting to learn how to make these uh, delicious desserts. And I, I first learned in high school uh, from a best friend at the time. And that started my whole passion for it like she she kind of demystified the whole baking process for me and I was like oh this is amazing like I could create these treats that I love to eat but the greater joy was in me like giving them away um and yeah. so all of that yeah from high school is when I always uh started dreaming oh I'd love to own my own bakery one day and and that's kind of where it led to yeah. so I, I remember uh I can't remember what video it was I was watching just this morning, actually, and you were talking about when you started creating the T-shirts. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. I, I, I actually couldn't find mine because I was going to wear it today, uh, which, was, which was really good. But that's when, I might be wrong, you, you can, you can uh, clarify, but you, you started to really express yourself and express where you wanted your... Uh, this passion to go then when it, yeah. it became more than just baking but to, to get a message out so right tell us a wee bit about that how did you go from uh, starting up the, the 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 company in the first place to then it morphing into what it is today uh, right so um yeah it's so funny I I yeah you're you're like one of my first t-shirt customers yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so Yummy Hall like initially started more as like an apparel bakery. Um, and that was really more because of logistics. Also, um, I didn't have access to my own commercial kitchen space at the time. And so I wasn't really allowed to be baking as a business. So um, when I first thought of Yummy Holic, that was the whole idea of Yummy Holic was actually inspired by my time in a program called AmeriCorps. Um, AmeriCorps is kind of like the, the Peace Corps within the country you know right, okay. yep. yeah for america and um so there was well within the program it was uh, specifically a program called public allies pittsburgh i was here in the city and uh one of their core values was was about focusing on assets and in a community sense that meant instead of trying to go in and try to create something new to help a community, AKA gentrify, um, you should try to just identify what assets are already existing within a community and amplify them. So I really um, applied that concept to myself and thought what, what skills, what passions and interests are already within me that I could maybe amplify. And that, you know, brought me back to like the whole, my passions for pastry, but I also had a very strong passion for social justice and all of this. So when I first started Yummy Holic, I, I actually already had this in mind of how can I combine baking 
breaking with social justice. It was like one of my very first questions from the very beginning. And initially it was to, um, it was through a charitable partnership with a local nonprofit called Beverly's Birthdays. So my goal was to continue trying to regularly bake for them. And that nonprofit basically provides, you know, birthday celebrations yep. and all this for children who are homeless uh, or experiencing homelessness. Um, so that was how it initially began. And, uh, yeah, and, and then and then again, then it like just gradually uh, led into the cookie activism only about not even a full year after because I started in the fall of 2015 officially like relaunched it as a bakery once I could bake and then it uh, happened in the summer of 2016 or so the whole cookie activism thing. <laughs> well, let, let's 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 stay on this and something else because the two the two main areas that I'm interested in most regarding. Well, actually, I'm really interested in the cookies, but uh, over, and, over and above the cookies, uh, I want, I would love you to describe the journey to how you use your cookies for social justice and to raise awareness. The other thing that really interested me was I heard you speaking about, uh, and it's on your website as well, there's a section on uh, using the cookies to help mental health problems. Oh, right, uh, yes. So, Either one, you, 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 you can choose which one we discuss first, but I really want to get that message out because I think that's one of the, or two of the, the most amazing things that you're doing at the moment through, through Gummy Holic. Yeah, so um, again, I don't know if there's a, too much more to add other than that the cookie activism part is sort of how I've used cookies um, towards social justice and the aspect of social justice that I'm most um, working toward currently is representation. Again, I think the lack, you know, people like to say ignorance is bliss, but I think ignorance is very dangerous. And so um, the lack of awareness when it comes to um, Asian Americans and their place in American history, if that is completely absent, then that makes us seem very irrelevant and you know invisible from the fabric of this country whereas what i told you as far back as the 1800s the first chinese americans came and actually you go further back um, the first filipino uh, immigrants had or rather they jumped off slave ships to like build a colony in louisiana so we were here even before the louis uh, the revolutionary war so, but we we're never really taught this in our in our curriculum here growing up um yeah so that's so you know, from the UK. Why, why do you think that is? Why, why do you think that is? What? Why? Yeah, you you just look at who writes the history books. <laughs> you know, all the focus is completely, um, you know, on white men. Uh, it's very Eurocentric. You don't really get much of the Eastern story at all. Um, and yeah, I think it's it's who has had the power um, in wielding the pen of history books up to this point. Um, I think that's yeah. I think that's the reason mainly. And so, yes, um, again, like using cookies is just another way of getting people to pay attention, um, you know, in, in a in a very unexpected type of way. And um, yeah, it's I mean, the impacts of it has been quite 
uh, beyond what I could have ever imagined. I'm, I've started, especially after the TED Talk too, I was hearing from people all around the world, even though I was focusing on, on the Asian American experience, but people over around the world who have felt underrepresented or um, also misrepresented uh, really connected with what I'm doing. And so not only that, it's just, I hear from now schools, like all these, actually I get like these random messages from middle schoolers and, and even elementary students who are like, oh, I learned about you in school and not just about me, but about all these stories that I'm sharing through my cookies. So it's just amazing that, oh, finally, like we are getting reinserted back into curriculum um, or I don't even know reinserted. We're, we're being inserted into, into curriculum finally. And so that's, that's, you know, you think what can cookies do, but like it's, actually now at least inserting themselves into um, the knowledge of our new generations. You know, I always think about my 10 year old self when I'm creating work and finally like they're learning, you know, so I think it's, it's a huge impact. Um, sorry, I went kind of long with that, oh, but I, yeah. I, I, <laughs> but yeah, bake therapy too, you mentioned. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I've always treated my cookies as art. And, um, you know, when I was, running my business, you know, you also uh, probably understand, but like there, you know, there's a lot of stress that comes with <laughs> operating a small business, especially in terms of making uh, the product itself. Um, and so while managing that, like, oh gosh, there were brutal days where I was just crying, you know, while I was working, because I was just so tired, but not getting any sleep. But what I became more aware of was how I was really re-energized in the kitchen and in the work itself. And so I started to wonder, I'm like, you know, this is very therapeutic to me. I wonder if there's such thing as bake therapy. And I actually was like really thinking about, is there such thing as bake therapy certification? Because I would love to do that, you know? And at that time, this was now 2017, I didn't find anything other than a lot of people in agreement about how uh, healing baking is for them. And so um, again, going back to how I treated my baked goods as art, I found a, a field that's called art therapy. And again, it's, um, you know, mental health, uh, service that is concentrated around um, art making, visual art making, and, and there's also a whole field of creative arts therapy that uses writing, music, dance, all of that um, drama to, you know, just help people heal. You know, you think about this theory of multiple intelligences where we learn in different ways, then well, I, I think the same thing that we can all heal in different ways and that those healing modalities should be as diverse as we are as, as humans, you know. So um, yeah, and I'm now back in school studying art therapy um, and trying to push these uh, frontiers of bake therapy, specifically as a potential form of art therapy. So um, again, it all comes back to the pause and the slowing down. Cooking, I think, is more, you know, like you could improvise more. It's fast, it's quick, but baking, you have to wait and you have to measure and be precise, you know. So um, I think we need that sometimes, like to the slowing down and, and baking, you know, the reward is almost immediate. Like if you can get through that wait of 30 minutes or whatever to bake, you do see the results relatively quickly. So I think that helps too in, in just personal development, even beyond. Um, mental health so yeah we have a we have a family tradition now on every Saturday morning uh, we make pancakes oh, so yeah. <laughs> Tracy is like you and is willing to be very precise 
and yeah. have patience and do things properly and it's always turn out much better and <laughs> I just throw it all in and then yeah. <laughs> hope, hope, hope that they and there isn't much to throw in with pancakes but uh, <laughs> They they, they they turn out they turn out not too bad. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure my family tell me. I think they're just trying to make me feel good. <laughs> uh, you, you mentioned TED there. Uh, TED Talks have become something huge in the world. Uh, and I remember being excited for you when I, I first heard that you were going to do a TED Talk. Uh, tell us about that experience, if, if you can do. Yeah. How you, how it came about and your actual experience of doing it and then the response afterwards as well. Yeah, um, it's funny. I've been looking through old journals of mine and I think I, I discovered like a journal from 2015 or 16 and I was writing about how I wish I could be on the TED stage. And I, I had no idea what I would talk about, but yeah. um, to think of that now, I'm like, oh, wow, it happened. You know? <laughs> um, but Actually, Pittsburgh, you know, I talked about some of the more um, disheartening aspects of the city, the FBI naming it one of the hubs of white, you know, terrorism and all that. But it's also um, the city where Mr. Rogers Neighborhood, this very beloved uh, children's program in America was founded and filmed. And the whole premise of that uh, show, Mr. Rogers Neighborhood, is like kindness, like kindness was a huge the, the biggest factor and everybody really being a community. And so there's a lot of that in Pittsburgh as well. Um, it's a city, but there's a nice also like small town feel where people encourage one another. Um, and so uh, with that being said, when I, uh, you know, I, I attended one of my first TEDx Pittsburgh events in 2000, it had to be 18. So the year before I was asked, and I ran into a friend who was a former speaker as well. And she's like, oh, Jasmine, you would you ever be interested in giving a TED Talk? I was like, sure. And so she, she just connected me to the organizers and that's kind of how it happened. And of course the organizers don't just accept anybody who is networked in that way. But um, I assumed that they had then started researching into my work because then I heard from them several months later and they were very interested in you know, having me as a speaker. So that's how that happened. Day of, we had a huge attendance. There's like over 900 people packed in this, one of the historic theaters in Pittsburgh. And I was so nervous. And, you know, this is where Taekwondo comes into play because my public speaking, you know, experience up to this point is teaching Taekwondo, you know, like that's probably the largest group experience I had where I had to stand and command, you know, uh, an audience. And so um, I was really trying to bring that, uh, you know, Taekwondo background into my public speaking and, you, you, you know, how my father is as well. I think um, listening him talk at the end of so many classes, uh, probably, I mean, he, he just very naturally uh, became my inspiration and, and my, my role model, really. And so I was trying to challenge, channel my dad's energy as well. Um, and what you won't see in the published TED Talk is that I did blank out for like a solid four seconds. <laughs> that felt like an eternity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
but yeah, it, it happened. I, other than that four second, um, you know, losing my mind there, <laughs> it went very well. And then, um, then once it was published, the aftermath of that was very surprising because it had just published and I was seeing 2000, 5000, 10,000 views. And I was like, what is going on? You know, because that's not typical. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't know how that happened. Uh, but it went viral very quickly. Um, and that was extremely exciting as well. And, and I kind of touched on it earlier where what was most surprising was hearing from people all around the world uh, who had seen it and connected on these universal themes of, you know, feeling underrepresented, feeling ostracized and, and all of that. And people were just, you know, um, of course there were haters, but most people were really loving yep. the idea of, um, wow, cookies, you know, who would have thought? So, yep. <laughs> yeah. you, you... That that couldn't have been planned any better, or it couldn't have <laughs> it couldn't have merged any better because the next thing on my notes was to talk about martial arts, uh, uh -huh. and I want to talk about your journey in martial arts, and then obviously I want to speak about your dad, but they're one and the same, obviously, to, in yeah. in many degrees. Uh, okay, general question to get sort of kicked off, or, or general thought. Uh, what, what have you taken from your martial arts experiences of being born into it to how has that helped you? You touched on it a wee bit there, but uh, how has it shaped the current Jasmine Cho from right. being born into martial arts for what's yeah. you new type thing? Right. It's just interesting. I just feel like, I mean, and I know that there are other children of martial artists, but uh I feel like I didn't have a choice. <laughs> you know, that's my honest opinion. Like I was yeah, just, yeah. I was born into, you know, all, all these like baby pictures that I, I see of myself. I'm in the dojang, you know, I'm, I'm in the school. And I, and I was just thinking about this too, how, you know, you think about your childhood and probably as a baby, you you connect with your mother's heartbeat. But for me, that that beat was my dad, you know, beating against the Congo. <laughs> <laughs> you know that I just yeah and and the, the those are the biggest sounds of my childhood him hitting against that um uh gongo on, on so it's like hitting against the congo but it's wrapped around a steel pole so you hear like boom like just yeah. reverberating throughout um and then he'd jump rope a lot and he I don't know how many he was able to do but it would just like you know, when you're uh, skipping jumps, yep, yep. it's like he's floating with like this brown aura because he had like a brown leather <laughs> jump rope. And it's like, <laughs> like I'd hear that a lot too in my childhood. So it's just funny how it's just, yeah, it's, it's so, it's so much a part of what I was born into that there's no separation, I don't think, um, as far as the martial arts and how I am. Um, but if I were to like pinpoint out like certain things that have um you know affected me just martial arts the training itself is definitely a sense of discipline yeah. um and, and that sense of passion um you know I'm, this is something new that I'm, I'm thinking of right now but that I mean the martial arts for me also personally I think it was a really healthy channel of 
like anger <laughs> and aggression. And yeah, even just like the last week, my mom was talking, just randomly told me about how, you know, your dad, like his whole life is about exercise and physical health. And when he feels good, he'll, he'll wail on the bag. And when he feels angry, he'll wail on the bag. And like, that was for me too. I think I loved having access to that, but like a, a channel of emotions and um, this whole passion for social justice too, I think started at a young age, um, you know, again, growing up and facing these feelings of injustice toward me um, mm -hmm. is why that was always very prevalent in my mind. But while I was doing martial arts, you know, um, there's the whole, also the non-physical side of it, we're constantly talked about how to connect with humanity and, and think on a higher level. And so all of that really just, came together i think and and definitely like like uh influenced every like my entire being <laughs> really so like channeling angers in healthy in healthy ways um and knowing that there is a just type of anger um that you should act upon um i think is huge um and again like yeah even just the knowing how to teach and the humility of also like you're a black belt, but you're really just a white belt, constantly a lifelong, you're, you're learning. And that idea of continuous learning is huge, huge in my life. Um, a, a very, very much a core value of who I am and how I navigate the world. I'm, I'm always hungry to learn. Um, yeah, and it's just fun. And then there's like things that just don't necessarily have any meaning, you know, not deep meaning, like just <laughs> when I think about Ryan, my, you know, uh, my partner and like how he grew up, he knew nothing about the martial arts. And so when he came over for the holidays with our family, he's yeah. just texting his family and saying, uh, I'm sitting here with Jasmine's family watching boxing and like, you know, it's just like totally different, but um, that was just how I, how I grew up. And, and that became like a, a way of our family to bond as well. And so it's just totally different. I don't know, just my, my family culture. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that uh, if I ever post a video of your dad or there's, or, or you post or, or was anything at all? One of the things that always strikes me is that there's comments from every single corner of the globe. There's people in Australia, Argentina, yeah. uh, you name it. At what age did you realize who your dad was? Yeah. And what what was that like? I. I had a Philip Ramirez Jr. on the podcast and we were talking about his dad. And you, I think it's really important that we see you as being your own person as well. And, and I want to say that. Uh, but I think there's, a, there's, it's nice to know and, and it's nice to reference as well that mm -hmm. you're the daughter of your father as well and obviously your mother as well. But yeah. when did you realise that my dad's grandmaster Cho. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I I think it probably happened in stages. Okay. So my earliest memory, I don't I don't even I I feel like you know I mentioned it in my TED talk too. Like I I think I saw my dad as like a a superhero like status since I was very little. I I don't remember how it started, but I know that I grew up watching him on TV too. Um, 
you know, best of the best. Uh, mm-hmm. I, oh, I loved, I'm so sad because I used to have his ch- uh, Korea coach, the, the captain's coach. And I didn't know the value of that when I was little, but I, I wore that and, and, and seeing my dad on TV, um, also meaning that I, we had a bunch of the VHS copies of his demos mm-hmm. and, you know, I'd see him demoing and, and breaking things and kicking and all of that. And so I, I just remember feeling, wow, my dad is like strong and, and talking about Bruce Lee. I, I really meant that. I was like, yeah. oh, my dad could beat up Bruce Lee because like the, I grew up watching my dad do all this, you know, be who he is. And so, um, and you know, in America, like in the elementary schools, it was common to have like a show and tell. I don't know if that's something yeah, practiced yeah. there. Yeah. So um, I would bring those VHS t- tapes to shows. Like, this is my dad, like watch him, you know? So that happened at a super young age. And then, um, and then probably like one of the earlier memories I have is when we had our visitors from Ireland come over and I met, um, you know, uh, Grandmaster Darcy and, and uh, his son. And I just remember like my first interaction with everyone from Ireland is like, I felt so bad, especially with uh, Grandmaster Darcy's son, John, John Jr. Um, he would, he would talk to me and I had no idea what he was saying because of the accent. <laughs> so, but I remember I was like, wow, you know, there's these people flying in from Ireland and the way that they treated my dad was just um you know to be to bear witness to that was a very powerful experience for me too because um yeah to see the people admire my dad in the same way my childhood eyes did like wow my dad is awesome and then like to see these people from a different country fly in um just to train with my dad and and like I you know Grandmaster Darcy from a young age too would always be telling me and and you know Grandmaster uh, Philip Amir is always telling me your dad is amazing and you know like kind of really uh reaffirming everything I already believed about my dad um but then like when I say in stages his 80th birthday video that still blew me away you know like to see everyone coming in like as you said from corners of the world um yeah it's just amazing I you know um and I appreciate you saying that I'm my own person too because I I did I I do (laughs) and I did struggle with that a lot where Um, in some ways I was like, I felt very burdened, like as if my dad cast a huge shadow (laughs) over me, like how will I ever outdo my dad? Or like, how can I ever live up to the legacy that he has built and and is leaving behind, you know? So um, it was like part very much like an inspiration for me, but also part sometimes suffocating, like, oh my gosh, like how, how can I do this? But it, it is true that he, like, I think his influence always pulls me forward. Like he always says, keep pushing. And, and that's definitely, yeah, yeah a philosophy that, it, I mean, his words just ring in my, in my ears, you know, like keep going, keep pushing. And, um, you know, uh, too late can be on time. Like all his sayings, you know, uh, live within me. And, uh, yeah, so I think it just continues on. Actually, it's it's been lifelong. The realization of, of his impact and and me continuing to want to um, hopefully be a fraction of of who he is, the legacy that he is. So, in my own way. <laughs> yeah. What 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 was the training like? Uh, I see. Just when you say keep pushing there, that's it's one of the times we were in Hawaii. Uh, 
Amir wasn't born at the time. And the, the day that we were flying home, uh, Grandmaster, uh, Grandmaster Darcy, Tracy and I went for lunch. And it's just, it's two words, keep pushing. But you know, you get moments where you just have memories, you just have really fond memories. And I remember your dad and Grandmaster Darcy were going back into the Dojang, surprisingly enough. <laughs> uh, and we were heading back to the hotel to leave. And he just looked straight at me and, uh, and he said, keep pushing. And yeah. and, and uh, yeah, it's just, <laughs> that's quite emotional actually. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so just <laughs> those memories are just, just two words, but in those two words, I knew exactly what he was saying. Uh, and yeah, just amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, let, once I've composed myself, let's uh, <laughs> let's talk about the training. What was it like actually being these classes and you being around the Dojang so often and doing his class? And were you pushed harder than anybody else? Or you know, I suspect my brother was. <laughs> Yeah, I think yeah. took it. I think he definitely took it way easier on me, um, being the daughter. Um, not to you know. I mean, he he is a he's of a different generation, so um, he was a bit more protective over me in some sense. I think, mm -hmm. and um, he, uh, yeah, he was definitely harder on my brother. <laughs> um, I think he wanted my brother to to you know uh, train really hard and you know be really good in fighting and, and all of that whereas for me I think he was like it's okay you don't have to you like do it too hard like don't be too too crazy with this you know um but it, I mean it was still important that I was in every class uh, that was that was like my baseline um so I don't think I was pushed to train harder than and, and again you if you knew my dad since back in the day he would push everybody really hard and he still do and he still does actually you know, it's just crazy to witness him um like when he's doing like the shuffle axe kicks and he's like literally gliding over the floor <laughs> and the rest of us are just out of breath and so that that kind of training I think has always been consistent as far as pushing everybody pretty hard but I do know that I think he he pushed my brother a bit extra hard uh, than he did with me so I I, I another Memory of just uh, how how he's, he's I I can't quantify it sometimes because you say things uh, and you try and explain to people and and maybe they they they, they don't fully or, or you don't do or I don't do a good enough job of expressing it. Uh, I know for a fact that Grandmaster Ramirez and Grandmaster Darcy have, have spoken about this, and if they feel this. My God, do I feel it. Anytime I've been in a seminar or at, in headquarters at Hawaii, you generally, in his presence, feel like a white belt. You, you generally do. That's not because he's making you feel, well, he is making you feel that way because of, of what he's like. Uh, but I, I, I still wish, and I'm going to put you in the spot here and ask when the book's coming, because I still <laughs> wish that we could uh, we could share more of him and, yeah. and 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 just get his and get more of him out there in the world because there's generations coming through that me telling stories just can't quite express what mm -hmm. what your dad's like. Uh, right. 
I don't think we can quantify that. I really, I really don't. And I, I, it's just in our memories that we can remember. Uh, even uh, COVID took away 2020. And yeah. when I was thinking about chatting with you today, I'm thinking, oh, I saw Jasmine in Hawaii, but I forgot that that was a year and a half ago. Yeah. Yeah. It was the full year. But uh, just seeing him, and he was, he was, he was 79 at that, at that stage, when we were last in Hawaii, just the way he still throws and kicks and walks out, it's it's quite extraordinary. It really yeah. is. And really it's, it is because he, he lives it every single yep. day. I mean, there is no way he could be the way he is if he didn't, you know, I mean, so it's, it is truly a testament to how much, not only, I mean, he loves Taekwondo. I mean, that's that is his true love. Like he's at the uh, the dojang every single day, and um, he feels really lethargic if he's unable to train. You know, yeah. um, and he, I mean, he, yeah, again, reminding people that he is eighty now, and so his body definitely feels it. And but I mean, I think um, he's still well above like average as far as his physical strength, stamina, and and all of that. But yeah. I have, I have all these random memories too. Like uh, this was when I was living in Hawaii with him and he um, was feeling really down and he, he, like we were in the office and he had, he was kind of like leaning against the door and he's like, ah, oh, I'm not as young anymore. Like all I did was like only a thousand roundhouse kicks each leg. I'm like, dad, like that's so much, you know? It's like, that is not normal, you know? That's still a lot. Um, yeah, so he, yeah. It's his consistency, his love, and 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 his discipline of just making sure that he's training every single day and and being that living example. Truly, truly. Yep. Yeah, I've I've never met anyone to this day, and who you spoke you spoke about him giving speeches at the end of classes and seminars and and and, and gradings. Uh, I remember phoning him up once uh, about something and feeling really really down about it and then he has he has such a way of your dad has said no to me in the past this isn't about uh, it being a, a, a yes 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 but I've never had someone tell me no and make me leave the conversation feeling as good about myself uh, <laughs> <laughs> as yeah. what dad can do uh, but I've never met anyone who has the ability to make you feel as good about yourself mm. uh, ever, ever uh, in any sort of walk of life or, or especially in the martial arts, just someone who is able to just touch so many people throughout the world is what, is what Grandmaster Ch uh, Cho did. I was going to say did, but still does, obviously, still does. Uh, yeah, quite, quite a unique individual. What what was your uh, what was your favorite? Give me. I'm I'm really wary of missing this opportunity with you, Jasmine. So, and give me if you can a couple of your favorite memories of growing up in Taekwondo with your dad, if you can, if you can pick it, if you can pick just a couple. Yeah. Um. There's like just silly memory, like. <laughs> There's silly memories of um, 
like being in middle school, that's when you, your eyes start opening to love interests, you know? And uh, <laughs> I learned later on after uh, actually that these, there were several boys who were interested in me and they'd call, try to call me and it was at the dojang. And so my dad'd be like, Grandmaster Cho, you know? <laughs> I just, <laughs> Cho Sekundo, you know? And um, so they, it, it totally scared them off, you know? Like, so there's silly memories like that. Um, I remember when my dad was, uh, you know, you know, when jujitsu was coming onto the scene and he would practice with me <laughs> and it was just like, it was so funny. Like we had fun doing that. He'd be like, wait, let me see if I could put you in a kimura or whatever. And then he like, hold on with like to my arm with his hands. He'd be like, oh my gosh, like you're so tiny. I could break you or like, you know, and just like, you know, just I, there's no like real meaning to them, but it's little moments like that, that I grew up. Um, that stick in my memory um, about him um, specific to Taekwondo gosh I mean yeah I don't know there's there's just like those kinds of things um, I would say another huge one that actually I feel like it was for me it's weird to say that it was a spiritual awakening for me, but I remember this, this was when my dad was uh, maybe 65 or 60. He was either almost 60 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, and it was, um, it's been a while since he had done a demo and uh, this was going to be in Pittsburgh, actually. Yeah, yeah. It was East Coast seminar. Yeah. And I was really worried for him, but you see now there's, I published some of the training videos he did. He just, the way he trained was he just practiced multiple times throwing boards in the air and practicing practice spinning kicks and all of that but I as his daughter I was just worried about his safety and I'm in in my mind at that time I was probably in high school I'm like oh my dad is is older you know and and I was just worried about him and so I remember praying a lot like please please don't let it get hurt you know and all of this and then you see him enter into the whole you know gymnasium where it was at and like he's just axe kicks past his head and and just he did an amazing demonstration just no mistakes let's boom boom and I that for me I was like oh my god like I was just so thankful I, I felt like because I was praying so hard I was like oh god you know thank you so much for keeping my dad safe and he killed it on the on the floor there and so that that's another huge memory to be able to witness that and 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 as well in person uh after that might have been my first yeah, that was my first and only time really of seeing my dad demonstrate because I grew up with watching everything on, on video. And, and yep. when I was a student, it was the students that were doing most of the demonstrations. So yeah, I just realized that. Yeah, that was the one and only where I really saw him in person demonstrating. Um, it was yourself that uploaded that, but that video footage is on YouTube. So yes. everybody should go and, and, and yeah. check that out. There's a wonderful... Again, you know these things, and I know these things because I've watched that footage a million times yeah. over and over and over. And there's a wonderful little uh, bit that you, you, even you might not even have picked up. Master Burn from Ireland. Uh, Grandmaster, uh, he does a blindfolded spinning heel kick. Uh -huh. And it's three separate boards. Yes. Uh -huh. So on a technical level, if you're breaking three boards that are, that are together, it's actually easier than doing it the way your dad did it, which was having a space between, mm -hmm. because it means that the arc of the spinning heel kick has to be wider. 
Right. Uh-huh. And he was blindfolded at the time. So there's a lovely little point because Master Burn is in the middle holding uh-huh. the board. And when your dad goes through the boards uh, and then goes to do his next break, he's, Master Burn just stands there shaking his head. <laughs> but if you watch the video, his hands come up just very uh-huh. quickly and he's shaking his head thinking, I, I know I was, he was the closest person to your dad during that. And even yeah. he couldn't believe the precision and the power and the speed and yeah. just everything that he was. You should go back and look for that. Because yeah, I will now for yeah, sure. <laughs> just see him standing, just, just shaking his head. Yeah. Uh, okay, uh, coming back to you just before we finish up. Mm-hmm. The, as I said at the beginning of the episode, I any time I see you on social media, I just think, when does this girl sleep for us? <laughs> uh, what's coming up now? What's 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 the future plans for you, really? Uh, yeah, it's so right Maybe now. I am actually it. working on a book proposal, but it, it's for my my work, so that's been consuming a lot. I am actually um, still actively in my master's program right now, um, although it's mostly remote. Uh, so that's consuming a lot of my time. Um, I just started off a whole uh, series of events called Kidsburg Cookie Table, and we have another one coming up this weekend. So uh, preparing for that, um, I've got a few speaking engagements lined up. So there's a lot of little little things, like short-term things and long-term things in the in the process. But um, one secret I will share is uh, I don't think I'm as busy as people believe me to be, but I've I've uh, learned to create some space for myself because mm-hmm. I can, I, I'm very much an introvert by nature actually. And so I can get sucked out of my energy quite easily. So I try to protect some of my days for just not doing anything. And, mm-hmm. and it's not mm-hmm. because I'm busy doing something. It's actually, so I have some time to spend with Ryan too. Like, yeah, of course. To, yeah spend time with their loved ones and, and do that. So that's the secret behind <laughs> how I, I'm actually not very busy. But <laughs> you just mentioned there and actually forgot that. Uh, just so we can, let's squeeze this in. You actually did produce a children's book, which is available as well. Oh, right. Yes, yeah, yes. I completely forgot to mention that. So Yeah, yeah. It's it's available on Amazon. I don't know if you can get it everywhere around the world, but it, it is on Amazon called Role Models Who Look Like Me. That was a project that came about while I was in undergraduate school uh, studying art therapy. And basically the book I'm hoping to put out in, in the near future is a cookie version of you know something like that. But the book I'm working on right now is a little bit broader, but okay. it's, still, it's still along the same lines of representation and history and all of that, so. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, okay, very quickly, just before we finish, Jasmine, uh, give us your website and your social media handles so that people can go and check all of this out. Yeah, everything is pretty much under my full name, which is Jasmine M as in Min Cho. That's my middle name. Um, it's So it's jasminemcho.com is my website. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, they're all Jasmine M. Cho. So find me there. <laughs> Jasmine, this has been an absolute treat. Uh, as I say, I was so chuffed that we could do it so quickly because when I first asked you I'm thinking it'll be weeks or months down the line but the fact that we could we could turn this around so quickly uh, listen god bless you Jasmine I've really enjoyed this uh, thank you so much again <laughs> just keep being inspirational keep doing what you're doing uh, yeah brilliant thank amazing you. okay thank you so much all right
Okay, Dad, God bless you. Family. <laughs> yeah, of course. Thank you. And to you. Right. Take care, Jasmine. God bless. Bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. -bye.